let's begin. So the um, what I would like to do is uh, to reflect upon the day of Tisha B'Av as seen through pieces of our liturgy. Uh, I will invite uh, you to speak up um, and from time to time, something to say, just unmute yourself and speak up or over the chat. Sarah is monitoring all of that and thank you. Um, the challenge of Tisha B'Av is to try to figure out how it continues to speak to us um, in our present situation. Every year is different. Uh, and uh, really in the Talmud, they discuss the question about whether the fast days, the minor fast, the commemorative fast should be in effect when in the words of the Torah, there is of the Gemara, there's peace, the shalom, should we fast or not fast? And the Gemara seems to suggest, certainly with the other minor fasts, the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, it's up to us to decide whether or not to fast. And the commentaries say that the Jewish people have decided to, to fast or to have sort of a half fast because the other fast days are not really fast days, says the Ramban. You're only fasting from morning to evening. The one real fast that we have outside of Yom Kippur is Tisha B'Av. And the uh, Gemara speaks of Tisha B'Av being different, different kind of day, different from the other uh, minor fast days. And what Tisha B'Av has become, especially as reflected in the, in the keynote that we recite, I'm talking about the Ashkenazi keynote, the Sfarim have their own keynote as well, of course. But um, what the keynote uh, consists of on Tisha B'Av are those that speak of the destruction of the temple. The keynote and the first many keynote in the Ashkenazic rite are written by Eliezer Kavir. And some of the other keynote, three in particular, uh, mark uh, events that took place in the uh, Middle Ages, different massacres, uh, crusaders, etc. And that's also marked in the keynote, as well as the burning of the, uh, of the Talmud. Uh, so the Ashkenazi keynote was seemed to be redacted fairly early, but the point is that Tisha B'Av, through the lens of the keynote, is seen as a day of national Jewish mourning for all events that have taken place over Jewish history. And of course, that would include more recent events. The Shoah, of course, uh, must be part of Tisha B'Av. So, we are, through the keynote, reflecting on this day of mourning. The fast is actually secondary. The fast on Yom Kippur is secondary, and it's certainly secondary on Tisha B'Av. It's a way of saying this day is different. And the challenge, I think, is to reflect the present situation that we are in, which changes all the time. One of the factors, obviously, is the uh, establishment of the Jewish state, the United Israel, which really calls into question uh, the way Tisha B'Av should be celebrated. Uh, in a narrow sense, the prayer of Nachem that's recited in Mincha Tisha B'Av, which talks of a Jerusalem which is uninhabited. Those are words that I find impossible to say and highly problematic, not just because they're not true, but because what does it mean after the establishment of the state, if one believes it's a good thing to deny that it is a 
a, an act of grace. That strikes me as religiously extremely problematic. But I give it as an example of the challenge that faces us, namely to reflect upon how to think of Tisha B'Av this year. And this year has been a difficult year for the world, for the Jewish people, for the world, for our communities. So how does that play into, or does it play into Tisha B'Av is something to think about. What I'd like to do in the time that we have together now is to reflect upon Tisha B'Av as seen through the lens of the, of the biblical readings for the day. When I say the biblical readings for the day, we're talking about there's, of course, on Tisha B'Av, the Torah is read in the morning, and there's also a half Torah, and the Torah is read in Mincha, and there's also a half Torah. So the Torah reading at Mincha on Tisha B'Av is identical to the Torah reading on every fast day, with the exception of Yom Kippur, but all the fast days have the same Torah reading. We read of the uh, post-Egel prayers of Moshe. We read of the teaching to Moshe, the attributes of God's mercy, which is understood as a vehicle to obtain forgiveness. Moshe is given a second opportunity. The people are given a second opportunity. That's the Torah reading. And the Haftorah, Hashem uh, seek out God when God is present from the book of Yeshayahu. That is the standard uh, reading, Haftorah reading for every single fast day. So Tisha B'Av, among other things, is a fast day. And the readings at Mincha time are a very good uh, uh, representation of the fact, or I say a, a reflection of the fact that Tisha B'Av is a fast day. In, in a certain sense, it's a real fast day. You fast the whole day, it's a 25 hour fast. But the morning is different. Tisha B'Av has its own specific Tisha B'Av readings in the morning, both the Torah reading and the Haftorah. So I thought it would be good to reflect upon the day of Tisha B'Av as seen through the Torah reading of the morning and the Haftorah of the morning. So let's begin with the Torah reading. And um, Torah reading is found from the book of Tvarim, chapter four. If you have the Tisha B'Av uh, so you see it there as well. And uh, it's a brief Torah reading. It begins with So when you bring forth children and grandchildren, you grow old. Yashan is old. You grow old, you go accustomed to being there. That's, what, that's how we begin the Torah reading. You've been there for a while. And having been there for a while, you begin to do things that are unacceptable. The uh, production of idols, that which God has explicitly uh, forbidden in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. And it strikes me that the very first verse has a suggestion of how does this come to be? What, are the, uh, what, is, the, what is the grounding of this forsaking of God or acting wickedly. And it strikes me that it's been no shantem People begin to take things for granted. 
people begin to lose a sense of how we got where we are. In the Torah, the ability to possess the land is an act of grace on God's part, redeeming us from slavery, bringing us to a land that's been promised to us many, many years earlier. And one can easily forget those things. Human nature is to forget how we got where we got, to forget the people that got us there, what it took to get there, etc. So the Torah reading on Tishabah begins with this verse, the Noshan Tenbaris. And that can lead to all kinds of bad things. In the Torah reading, it leads to the production of idols, idol worship, etc. And then we come to verse number two. I call heaven and earth this day to witness against you that you shall soon perish from the land. One might say, I testify, says God today, in the presence of heaven and earth. It reminds me of a verse that appears later in the book of Dvarim. And that's Hazino Ashamayim Vadabela. In Hazino, the song which appears, the penultimate song in the book of Tvarim. So there again, listen, heaven and earth. And what the song is about is, is basically a dire warning of what will happen in the coming years when people forget God. A terrible warning, a terrible description of punishments, destruction, and uh, a description of, of a very angry God. And here we have, in effect, this same ha'idoti bochem ha'yo. It's a warning. And it strikes me, actually, in thinking about this word, it's a warning. I'm reminded of a story that appears in two places in the Bible. The first in the book of Murachim, Second Kings, and the second place in the book of Chronicles, Divrei Hayamim, towards the very end. And that's the story of Yoshiahu. King Yoshiahu was a very righteous king. And the story that we're told there, both in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, is that he sends, uh, he wants to uh, improve to uh, to fix the, the temple, to fix up the temple, improve it, make all kinds of improvements. And the priest in the temple discovers a, a book, a Sefer Torah, Sefer Torah Moshe, discovers a holy book, Moses, Moses Torah in the temple, and he brings it to Yoshia. All kinds of discussion about it. The consensus, I think, well, certainly many believe, that the book that Yoshio is given is nothing less than the book of Devarim. And Yoshio reads this book, Sefer Devarim, and he's astonished, amazed, and he's shocked by what he reads in the book. Because what he reads in the book of Devarim, as he understands it, is that failure to obey God's word, idolatry in particular. Sefer Devarim has a very strong uh, piece of it is an attack on idolatry. And he understands that the book of Devarim suggests in more than one place, including these verses that we just read, that for the sin of idolatry, there will be banishment from the land. And he sets about to correct that. He sets about on a 
program on a crusade to eliminate idolatry from the land. And actually, there's a difference between the description in the book of Mulachim and the book of Chronicles. Because in the book of, of Mulachim, uh, it's this fighting of the Sefer Torah, which actually begins the whole procedure, the whole process. Whereas in the book of, of, uh, of, uh, in the book of, of, of Chronicles, he already has started on this process. But in any event, it's the book of Devarim, which one might say bears witness to the fact of sin and punishment. And we have to remember that the book of Devarim contains, towards the very end of the book, several chapters which talk of God's punishment and God's great anger. Chapter, uh, chapter uh, 29, for example, of the book of Devarim describes God's anger. And uh, chapter, of course, 32. Then we have chapter 28, the very long Tochacha, chapter 28, which talks what happens if you do good, the blessings that will follow. They're relatively brief. And then the long and frightening description of the horrific uh, things that will take place if one strays from God. Much of that is alluded to in the keynote, especially of Kavir. So in short, King Yoshio uh, discovers to his amazement, the book of Devarim, which bears witness. In point of fact, it's actually very interesting as a side point that Yoshio himself, after all the good that he does to undo the wickedness that was brought to the land basically by his grandfather, Menashe, who's presented as the worst king of Judah who ever lived. And Yoshio, his entire life, is undoing that to the best of his ability. But at the very end, uh, Yoshio is uh, actually killed. He's killed because the king of Egypt, Power Necho, is transversing the land of Israel to get to go north to fight the Assyrians. And Yoshio attempts to stop him. And when he sets out to stop him, the forces of Egypt uh, kill Yoshio. His death is prescribed. He's shot with 300 arrows and he dies. And the, our tradition wrestles with this fact. How could it be that this most righteous king who is combating idolatry at every turn, seems to bring great reformation and improvement to the land, who sacrifices the Paschal sacrifice, the carbon Pesach for all of Israel. How could it be that he is slaughtered by the forces of power and the So the, actually the, our tradition uh, tries to resolve this problem. The Book of Chronicles has its own solution to the problem. That's one solution. Namely, he, he was warned not to do it but not, by none other than Pharaoh himself, who acts as sort of as God's messenger. That's the version in Chronicles. And there are other versions. The truth of the matter is that what's interesting is that after the death of Yoshio, the very, very end of the Book of Chronicles, chapter 35 of Chronicles, very end, which describes the death of Yoshio, and I'll read this to you, is chapter 35, says, after he's killed, and everybody was mourning for King Yoshio, and Jeremiah issued a, a, an elegy 
הרומנט בקין יושיעו, ויאמרו כל השרים והשרות בקינותיהם על יושיעו עד היום, ויאנון רחוק על ישראל. הנם כתובים על הקינות. So Jeremiah composed laments for Yoshio, which all the male and female singers sang, recited in their laments for Yoshio, as is done to this day. They became customary in Israel. They were incorporated into the laments. So to lament King Yoshio, the righteous king who died, the verse in the end of chapter 35 of Second Chronicles says, they became part of the laments. And if you said keynote this morning, if you said, depends which one you said, but there is a kina, kawiyah, the first 15 or so, and he has a kawiyah, the sixth one begins with, so it's included in the laments of, of, of kawiyah, and kawiyah presumably is imagining what, maybe what Yumiyah said. He makes it up himself, obviously, but it's a very interesting kinah. Um, to a, a lament for the righteous king, I would say also a lament for a, a single person. Because the keynote that we recite on Tisha B'Av are for the general community, the people of Israel. But this particular kinah is focusing on one person. And we should never lose sight of the fact that the death of thousands or millions, each one person is, is unique. Each one person is worth mourning for. So we talk about the collectives, but the collectives are a bunch of individuals. And in that particular elegy, which I point you towards, not going to study it now, but Kawir himself tries to answer the question of how could it be that the righteous King Yoshio, the most righteous of all, from the time of Moshe, none more righteous, says Kawir. How could it be that he is massacred? And um, he has his own answers, Midrashic answers. One answer is that the reformation of Yoshio, he meant well, he did some good, but at the end of the day, it was unsuccessful because people secretly, publicly, people were uh, eliminating the idolatry, but privately, in the, in the privacy of their own homes, it uh, continued. That's one of the answers he gives. There are other possible answers. And of course, one answer is, which would appear to emanate, emerge from the Book of Kings is, it's too late. That's not an answer we like to hear, but sometimes it's gone too far. It can't be undone, as it were. Nonetheless, you can set the stage for the future, but it can't be undone. So that's Yoshio. And Yoshio finds, he discovers the Book of Devarim. So I wanted to take a moment in reflecting on uh, Tishabov to think about where Tishabov falls. And by that I mean where it falls during the course of our, of our yearly cycle of, of uh, Torah reading. Because the cycle which most of the Jewish people have embraced uh, is the cycle, the Babylonian cycle, to complete the reading of the Torah every year. In ancient Israel, they completed it twice in seven years. We know that. But uh, the Babylonian tradition, which was a later tradition, took hold. And in most places, the Torah is completed each year. 
how how exactly you divide the Torah over the year is an interesting question. Obviously, in the land of Israel, where it was three and a half times as long to finish, they had much shorter Torah readings. And maybe they had weeks where they didn't read the Torah at all. That's also possible, special weeks. But the common practice is to finish it during the year, to complete the Torah on actually, remarkably, not on Shabbat, but on the holiday of Sukkot, or Shemini Yatzeret, which we call Simchat Torah. The second day of Shemini Yatzeret in Chutzgar, it's called Simchat Torah. In Israel, it's all one day. And that's the day we complete the Torah. The main signpost that the Talmud gives for the reading of the Torah, for the ordering of the Torah, the main signpost, Torah, the Gemara says that the tochacha, the admonitions, the blessings and curses that appear in the book of Vayikra and the book of Devarim should be read, the first one before the holiday of Shavuot, that's the admonition of Vayikra, and the one in Devarim, Parshat Kitavo, should be read before Rosh Hashanah. And the common practice of the Jewish people has been leaving out Shavuot for now, which is interesting for other reasons, but in terms of how we, the order of the reading of the Torah. The book of Devarim, the first many parshiot in Devarim are the same every single year. We always read the blessings and the curses, the admonition, we always read it two weeks before Rosh Hashanah, without exception. And the week before Rosh Hashanah, we read the next Sidra, which contains within it both the uh, New Covenant, the Covenant of Arvot Moab, the, the middle of chapter 29, and chapter 30 talks about repentance and talks about return. It begins with the verse, after the blessing and curse has taken place, and talks about, you shall take to heart, Vashevota Elevavecha, and describes a process, an interactive process of God and the people, each one taking a step towards the other and a description of return. The word to return, Lashuv, appears seven times in that parsha in chapter 30. It's called Parshat HaTeshuva, the parsha of return. And it's always read just before Rosh Hashanah, always. And the blessings and the curses, the brachan Krala, are always read two weeks before Rosh Hashanah. And what's interesting is that you could have arranged that. Seven parshiot before Rosh Hashanah, the seventh being repentance, the sixth being blessing and curse. And end, you end the yearly cycle with Zotah Bracha, you end with blessings. But where actually do you go back when you've got seven parshiot before Rosh Hashanah? Because they can be divided any which way. We know there are short parshiot and there are long parshiot. Parshat Vayelech is 30 verses. Parshat Naso is 176 verses. So you could actually have gone back any which way. But we always go back the same way. Always. And that is, it is always the case, without exception, that the week before Tisha B'Av, which we call Shabbat Chazon, is without exception, always, Devarim. No exceptions. And it's interesting, by the way, to the degree that sometimes it turns out, you know, that 
what they're reading in Israel on Shabbat and what they're reading outside Israel are not the same. That happens, for example, when the, when the second day of Yantav or the eighth day falls on Shabbat. Because in Israel, there is no second day of Yantav. There's only one day. So that's a regular Shabbat, read the regular Torah reading. For those outside Israel in Chutz Laaretz, they have the special reading for the festival. So they're one week behind. That happens often. And then you have to catch up at some point. And what's interesting is that when it happens, and it does happen, but we always make sure that before the volume we're caught up. Because the volume always is the reading before Tishabov. And I believe something else is interesting, what we read on Tishabov. What we read on Tishabov, chapter of Devarim chapter four, is taken from the second parasha, Parashat for Etchanan. Parashat for Etchanan, which is typically also Shabbat Nachamu, but is the Torah reading of Parashat for Etchanan. That's always the reading of, of Tishabav. So Sefer Devarim, the Sefer Devarim, this book of that testified, the book that Yoshiel found in the temple, the book that speaks of God's punishment and the consequence of sin in more than one place and in most striking terms. And the keynote allude to them in several places. And this is the Torah reading. So it's interesting. Sefer Dvarim reflects, one might say, a certain cycle. It reflects Tishabab at the beginning. I would say it reflects Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur past the middle, and you're ending on the holiday of Sukkot. You end with Sukkot. You end with blessings, and more than just blessings, actually, because Bracha is about the blessing, blessing of the people. But it doesn't really begin with the blessing of the people, and it doesn't end with the blessing of the people. It begins with a description of God and God's presence. Hashem mi sinai barbizarach mi ramo, it describes the present God. And it ends at the very end of all the blessings. The last verse speaks of a people redeemed by God. And the end of the Zotah Bracha is Moshe truly can't enter the land, but he sees the land. So it's about essentially the presence of God, the presence of God in Jewish history, the presence of God in the sacred spaces. That's how we end this book. But most of Sefer Devarim is more about caution, warning, uh, alarm, etc. So the book, as it were, represents, I would say, the movement from Tishabov to Sukkot. Tishabov in the Torah, after the story of the golden calf, we remember that God spoke to Moshe in chapter 33 of the book of Exodus and said, you can go to the land. Moshe broke the tablets, but I'm not going with you. Go to the land, I'll send an angel. I can't go with you lest I destroy you. We'll fight, we'll quarrel, you're too stubborn. And then Moshe intercedes on our behalf. Moshe is the negotiator to bring God and the people together. When the people heard in chapter 33, the beginning of Exodus, chapter 33, that God will not go with them, that is to say, there will be no temple, there will be no mikdash, no mishkan, 
they, the people went into mourning. They didn't put on their jewelry. They went into mourning. And then Moshe steps in and Moshe attempts to bring the two parties together. Moshe succeeds in bringing the two parties together. God teaches Moshe the attributes of God's mercy. Hashem, Hashem, We get a second chance. We get a second set of tablets. And the book of Exodus ends with the building of the Mishkan, with the structure that houses God. God and the people dwell together. So the book of Exodus ended with one might, let's call it Tishabah, mourning that there will not be the presence of God, which takes the form of the Mishkan, the temple. And then you move to reconciliation through forgiveness, through Hashem, Hashem, we would call it Yom Kippur. And of course, it ends with the building of God's house, the Mishkan, which in our calendar is the Sukkah. And the book of Devarim mirrors that, actually. The book of Devarim mirrors that. This book, is the book that begins with, on the calendar, pre-Tishabov and Tishabov, then through a series of weeks, consolation, the weeks of consolation, leads you to repentance, and repentance leads you to ability to dwell in God's presence. That's the book of Devarim. So I don't think it's a coincidence that they chose for the Torah reading, Tishabov morning, and now I wanted to let me stop here for a moment. If anybody has any comments or questions, and I'll get to the uh, one of the main points I'd like to make about reflecting on Tishabov. A question that I think emerges, it emerges without Tishabov too, but it certainly emerges when one looks at the keynote of Tishabov. But I'll pause here for a moment. If anybody has a comment or question in the chat, speak up now. There's nothing in the chat, but if anyone would like to write anything now or unmute yourself, this is the time. Uh, I have a question. Yes. Um, there are uh, two. Uh, I was uh, reading the notes and one was uh, the extent of suffering the the gross cruelty uh, that uh, uh, israelites experienced especially during temple destruction that is uh, really shocking it's like uh, uh, even uh, after reading cannot even schindler's list looks like a pleasant movie and so it was such cruelty and the other aspect is that uh, uh, some of the cannot say that uh, God allowed this to happen. God allowed this to happen as a punishment. And uh, that does not match with the attributes of God. Uh, would you comment on that? Yeah, of course. One, is, is there such, a, such cruelty? And yes, then, no doubt. Uh, right. Well, there's no question. And the truth of the matter is that the Torah speaks of horrific things happening the Torah itself, before you get to history, talks about uh, women eating their children, talks about all kinds of um, all kinds of terrible things that happened. The keynote actually reflected. There is no attempt on Tisha B'Av in, in the keynote, A, to deny what has happened over time. You know, terrible things have happened throughout Jewish history. 
I mean, you look at the, if you're interested in studying the history of the Jews in the in the Europe, just open up Hebrew to Wikipedia. I mean, history of the Jews in England, France, not to speak of the Eastern Europe, etc. It is truly horrific, uh, even before you get to the Shoah and before you get to all that. Uh, so it's you know that's for sure. Um, and the Torah speaks of this, and it is rather uh, frightening. And yes, I think it perhaps does raise a question about God, which actually in the keynote, you have within the keynote, uh, several of the keynote, uh, we call them, if you don't want to say attacks upon God, serious questioning of God's role. How could you, how could you A, do this? Or how could you allow this to happen? And Tishabov is that kind of a day. I think it's an important element of Tishabov. It's a day in which we allow ourselves to ask questions that perhaps normally we would not raise, not publicly, certainly. We're very discreet about that. And within the keynote, there is a tension. There is a keynote, Luchash Amatstaka. Yes, we deserved it. We don't say we're innocent. But on the other hand, A, are the, are the people persecuting us any any uh, any any better? And secondly, look at all the innocents who die as well. So all these kinds of questions are raised on uh, on Tisha B'av. and I think that's part of the value of the keynote. Is and that says to me that what the tradition demands of us is a core honesty. Um, so it's a core honesty, honesty when it comes to how we see ourselves in the world, honesty about our own, our own selves, our own failings, honesty about what we say, say to others or say in our prayers. Shouldn't say things in prayer that are patently not true. And there are pieces of our liturgy which seem to be to us not true. How, how do you deal with it? Do you reinterpret? These are all big questions. The other day in the year, I would say that similar questions can be raised a very different kind of day, but it raises identical questions, I think, is of course Purim. Purim we managed to escape. Purim we managed to avoid the decree at the last second. King couldn't sleep that night. He wanted something read to him, etc., etc. But we came very close to being utterly destroyed. And for no reason it would appear, the Megillah, by the way, never suggests, certainly not overtly, that the Jews deserve any of this, actually. Never suggest such a thing. The Talmudic tradition, the Midrashim are very bothered by this, they have all kinds of suggestions. But the Megillah makes no such suggestions. One person, one egomaniac has the attention of the king who could care less one way or the other. So I think that Tishabov and Purim, actually, these two days serve a similar function. I'm not here to uh, explain or justify the ways of the divine to the human because I don't have the answers myself. Uh, you know, my theology consists of two parts. The first part is certainly right. The first piece of theology is, which is 100% correct, which is, I know nothing about this. That's certainly correct. Then I have a second piece of theology, which is may or may not be correct, which is, I don't think anybody else knows too much more than I do about this. I could be wrong about that, but that's my theology. I know nothing. And I don't believe too many other people or anybody truly understands to explain the ways of God. Now, what, the, what, the, what our tradition demands of us to do, I can do better with that. And all we have to do as humans, don't know fully, but 
what the right, because our prophets and our teachers have taught us. Right? You have it in this end of this week's half Torah. And he has scaled the adulty. No me, says God. I, I'm a God who does chesed and mishpat and tzedakah. I, I'm just, and I do, I'm kind. That's how we have to act. But to answer all the questions about the cruelty, etc., is beyond my capabilities. So, but here is something else. But here's what I will say about the question, which is a totally valid question. What I will say is this. The parsha actually does try to answer one question, which emerges from the keynote, and you don't need the keynote to ask the question, which is, why has Israel been singled out for such persecution? When one looks at history, yes, Israel, is, Israel has been singled out for persecution from many sources. And what is that about? The book of Devarim, I think, provides us with a, a setting to try to understand what this is about. And the Torah reading of this morning talks about, you know, forgetting, becoming accustomed, taking things for granted, losing a sense of wonder and mystery and awe. That's all true. And because of this, we're sent off into exile. In exile, we worship stone and wood. And there the Torah said, from that place, from the place of, of, of deep loss, from the place of, of, of deep exile, from that place, it's possible to start over again, to seek out God in the words of the book of Devarim, your heart and soul, and that's a Devarim phrase. But when it is in time of great distress, when these terrible things happen, you can return. And then you have the mention of the merciful God. There you have the merciful God. God is willing to accept you back. That you do have in this morning's Torah reading. What's interesting is then the, the Torah reading goes on to recall the past. Remember what happened in the past. For example, has a people ever heard has there been another people who heard God's word emerging from the fire? And this phrase, emerging from the fire, appears later on in the, this morning's Torah reading. You, God causes God's voice to be heard, to chastise you, to rebuke you. And on the earth, God showed you the great fire, God's great fire. And you heard God's words out of the fire. And it's interesting that here and elsewhere in the book of Dvarim is a focus on the fire. You heard God's words from the fire. And I think that is in a way emblematic of Sefer Dvarim. The point of the fire, what the book of Devarim, more than any other book, calls on us to remember, actually, is the giving of the Torah. It describes it as the day of the, of the, of the, of the, of the gathering, Yom, Yom HaKahal. Later on, it's HaKel Am. 
and you heard God's words out of the fire. The, the meeting with God in the Bible is dangerous, it can be fatal if not properly prepared for it. And the, what happened at Sinai was the covenant, to become a covenantal people. And that I think is the key actually to understanding the book of Devarim. The Torah was not just a set of laws, it's Luchot Habrit, it's tablets of the covenant. And, and for the book of Devarim, and for our tradition in general, the covenant means a closeness to God and a certain responsibility, because the covenant is two-sided. So the covenant is about two parties coming together in a very, very, very deep relationship, which means that each one cares about the other. It means each one accepts responsibility for themselves. And when that is broken, and that's why the model in the Torah earlier in the book of Bamidbar is the Sota. Book of Devarim also later seizes upon the Sota because a couple that gets together professes uh, their love for each other and their full commitment to each other. These are not just two friends. This is a kind of covenantal bond. And therefore, if one violates the bond, it's not just you did a bad thing, it's an act of betrayal. And that is how the Torah actually represents God and the Jewish people later on in this book in chapter 29. It describes, and people will come to the land and ask, why is God so angry? Why the angry God? And it is certainly true that there is an angry God running through the Bible. Uh, certainly the Hebrew Bible is also the merciful God. There's also Hashem, Hashem, Karachum, B'chanun. There are both. But the fact of the matter is that the anger is represented in the text as emerging from the closeness, from the covenant, from the commitment. And if someone is very close to you, people closest to you are capable of, of hurting you more than anybody else. So I think that's a way to, I'm not answering all the questions, but it's a way to imagine what uh, the relationship is. And it's a very good segue into Tisha B'Av. And the keynote actually reflects this because with, within the keynote, some of them speak of are telling God, have you forgotten the covenant? And God's response directly, indirectly is, I actually haven't forgotten the covenant. A, I think you forgot it before and I haven't, but B, that's exactly the point. I, there's, an act, there's a sense of betrayal over here and the sense of betrayal results in anger. Anger or, or, or simply not caring at all and being left to, to an uncaring world. And be, remember, being left to a world in which you are a marginal group. We know that marginal groups do poorly in general. And the Jewish people as a marginal group do particularly poor uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, doesn't not going to get into that now as to why. It's not just one factor. It's not just not having your own space. It's a function of over Jewish history without question. The church is responsible for the death of many, many Jews without question, uh, directly and mostly indirectly, but setting the stage, but being a marginal people, being perceived as uh, evil, being an easy scapegoat, and then way before the Shoah, then the perfect storm of the Shoah. 
So this is, we don't want to let human beings off the hook by blaming it on God. That's for sure. Uh, and we don't want to let ourselves off the hook either, I think. And I think Tisha B'Av is, it is a day of mourning, but it's also a fast day. And this is the point I wanted to make about the, about the uh, Torah reading. And that is that the Torah reading is about a warning. It is about exile, but it's also about the possibility of, 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 of return. We cast misham from that place, from that place of exile, you will seek out God, you will find the answer when you seek it out. Lidrosh, vacation Lidrosh means to seek. If it's authentic, here already in chapter four, and then we have later in chapter 29, in chapter 30 in particular, it's spelled out in more detail, there presents repentance as a kind of repairing the, 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 uh, the breaking of, of, the, of the covenant. It's presented in very human terms, a real reconciliation which both sides have to take steps towards the other. So I think that the reading of Tishabov in the morning, Tishabov is both a day of mourning and it's a day of fasting. It's a fast day. The afternoon is straight up a fast day, but the morning of Tishabov with the keynote and the reading, and it's read in a echatun, the morning, there's a, in the Ashkenazic tradition, a big focus on, on, the, on the morning, M-O-U-R. So in the be beginning of Tisha B'Av, it's more about the Avelut, the morning. Then you move towards, as the day proceeds, much more towards the fasting element. And the difference between morning and fasting is the following. Morning is a focus on what has been lost. What, what is missing? And that's the challenge of Tisha B'av, to try to figure out what is missing. We talk about mourning the destruction of two temples and whether you particularly want the temple to be rebuilt or not. But what the temple symbolizes in our tradition is God's presence. The destruction of the temple means the distance from God. And a distance from God means not just God's protection, but a distance from understanding how people should behave. There's the loss of the prophetic tradition. And then the, we have the rabbinic tradition. We have teachers. It's not an accident that part of the keynote, the laments include the, 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 the 10 martyrs. I saw Aruge Malchut. These are our teachers. They give us a path. So what we are mourning is the, the concealing of God's presence, the uncertainties, we like some more direction. And, but the focus is on what has been lost. And that's a very important focus. What is actually important that we don't have? That's step number one. That was the step of the story of the golden calf. They think the people are mourning, people are crying. And then the question becomes, how do you repair it? How do you move towards reconciliation? You know, the fast day, contains extra prayers. The fast day, every fast day, Yom Kippur in space, but every fast day has what's called Srichot, the Srichot, the penitential service, every fast day, except for Tishabov. Tishabov, there are no Srichot, remarkably. And that's because, I think, the morning precludes it. The mourner says fewer prayers. The mourner doesn't say Tachanun. 
And the Machs of Vitri says, because you limit your prayers, not because it's a festival, whatever that means. You limit the prayers. A mourner limits prayers. A mourner is more silent. The fasting is all about prayer. It's about sounding the chatzotra, the trumpets. The morning, the, the, the one who's fasting, it's about repentance, basically. It's about tshuva. A day, of, a day of fasting is a day of repentance. A day of mourning is a day of loss. And the day of Tisha B'Av, actually, you move from the lamenting and the mourning because what has been lost? Someone who's sitting shiva knows what's been lost. Okay, you reflect upon the person. Do we ever fully know the other? Probably not, but we know, we know a good deal. But on Tisha B'Av, the question becomes, what is missing? What is lost? That's the first step. And that's the importance of the keynote and thinking about it, reflecting on it. And where do we stand today relative to all this? And then we have the second piece, which of course is the, um, how do we make it better? Repentance, that's so what steps should be taken to try to improve the situation, to move us closer. So the Torah reading in the morning is both. It's part of the book of Dvarim. It's about, it's, it's, it's testifying against us. It's a warning. And then it describes an act of return. And it describes God in this section and, and the surrounding sections. The Torah was given in fire. The Torah can be a dangerous thing. The Torah makes all kinds of demands upon us. If you enter into that covenant, those are the demands that are being made. If you if you're not in the covenant, that's a different story. Fewer demands. But if you're in the covenant, those are the demands. I have a few minutes left here. Um, Rabbi Silber, to... Judith yes. has her hand raised for a question. Go ahead. Speak, please. Judith, you should be able to unmute yourself now. Judith? Okay, they they lowered their hand. Never mind then. Okay. Um, Let me say ahead. you have just under minutes. 10 minutes left. And we have 10 minutes. I want to repeat something that I taught three years ago. Uh, most of you were not there. A couple were there. And that is something from the Haftorah. The Haftorah of the morning. The morning Haftorah from the book of Yirmiyahu. Very powerful Haftorah. And there's a lot to say about this Haftorah. I want to make one small point. Yermio is the, the hero of Tisha B'Av, is, is, is Yermio, the prophet of, of lament, the prophet who chastises us on one hand, but also feels for us and suffers with us on the other. And he himself is very torn in the book of Yermio, even in this section over here. On one hand, he can say, uh, my, my, my head was just, font of water, I would cry day and night for my people. And the very next verse, he says, I wish I could go out to the desert and be alone and not be amongst these people, amongst these sinners. And they're both true statements about Yirmiyahu. He's very torn. He knows what his task is to deliver God's message. At one point, he challenges God. But that's Yirmiyahu. But in this Haftorah that we read this morning, there's something very interesting and I wanted just to mention it here. This is found further down in the Haftorah. He talks about, talks about wanting to leave the people. 
keep, 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 keep going down, 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 further down, further down, further down, further down, further down, further. Yes, uh, right there. We asked the verse. He talks about the people. No, down more. That's it. They bend their tongues like bows. They are valorous for treachery, not for honesty. They advance from evil to evil. So the people are, are deceitful, treacherous. Look at the next verse. Beware. Every one of his friends. Trust not, I'll call Ach, I'll tip top. Trust not your brother. Ki call Ach, Okov Yaakov. For every brother takes advantage. And this language is striking. Call Ach, Okov Yaakov. Every brother is treacherous. And we are reminded, actually, of the story in the Torah of, of, of Yaakov. Yaakov took the blessing that Isaac had intended to give to his brother. Here it says, don't trust your brother. What Yermiel is singling out over here as the sin which causes exile, destruction, he mentions idolatry, but what he seems to be focusing on is the way we deal with the other person. One might say, Lashon hara and in particular, speaking deceitfully, taking advantage of your brother. And notice it's very interesting, he continues with the same kind of talk. One cheats the other, they don't speak the truth. They've taught themselves to speak falsehood. They tired themselves out speaking falsely, crookedly. And the next verse, You dwell in mirma, in deceit. In their deceit, they refuse to heed me, declares the Lord. Therefore, Therefore, I will smelt them, say them, purify them. What else can I do because of my poor people? And it strikes me that when you open up the Chumash and you read the story of Jacob pretending to be Esau, and that story, he stands before his blind father and pretends to be Esau. And the commentaries, of course, and many others are very troubled by it. And they give all kinds of excuses. They didn't really lie and all kinds of stuff. And you read the Chumash, you say to yourselves, what? That's not what it says. And actually, apart from the fact that when Esau finds out what Jacob has done, he says, he calls his name Jacob. He has circumvented me by Yaakveni. And his father says to him, Isaac says to Esau, Your brother came in deception and he took your blessing. And notice over here, 
three times you have the word mirma. Shiftecha betoch mirma. Bimirma me'anu da'at otinu ma'ashem. And then two verses later. Chet shachut rishonam mirma diber. They speak with deception. So three times the word mirma. And we have on top of that, Okov Yaakov. And we have the brother as well. And this says, Yirmiyahu is, is the cause for exile. The cause for purification. And it strikes me that what Yirmiyahu does here, and he does it elsewhere too, he's a, uh, he's a parshan. He's saying, he's giving a commentary, an explanation of the story in the Torah. And what he's saying is the same way Yaakov, Jacob, who deceived his brother and who spoke by Mirma and who circumvented Akov Yaakov, what is the result of Jacob doing that? He had to go into exile, right? His mother says, you better leave right away. Go to exile. And 20 years he's in exile. And the 20 years in exile in the house of Laban, he learns what it means to be deceptive. And actually, Jacob, one might even say, must engage in a certain deception to survive in the house of Laban, which is positive and negative. But 20 years later, he comes back home. That was never my place. So it strikes me that the choice of this section for Tishabah is no accident. The Talmud says that the second temple was destroyed because of Lashon Hara. The first temple was the big, the big sins. But the second temple, because of the way we deal with the other, the way we speak, to, to speak deceptively. And if you speak deceptively, the Haftorah says something else. In deception, they refuse to know me, says God. And I believe the interpretation means if you are deceptive, you actually can't know God. Because to know God means to be honest with God. Because God is the God who does chesed, tzedakah o mishpat, tzedakah o mishpat, a righteous God. The righteous God does not grope those who are deceptive. So Tishabab is a day which we try to be as honest as we can in terms of what we say, in terms of understanding what this loss means for us today, in terms of looking at Jewish history and trying to get a handle on it and where we sit within it. And then of course, the question is having figured out to some extent what's missing, how do we set it about, set out to, to make things a little better? That's the challenge of Tishabov. So Tishabov in the Torah, in the book of Exodus and the book of Devarim, as we read the Torah, in the book of Devarim, the trick is to move from Tishabov, which is the absence of the Mikdash, to move it towards the Zotah Bracha, which is all about God's presence. You do this, it takes an entire book, and it's a tough book. And Moshe doesn't mince any words. Neither does the prophet Yermiel. But it's always through engaging with in an honest way with ourselves and our tradition and where we stand that we can move forward through the book and arrive, arrive, arrive in God's presence in Zotah Bracha. So that's what I had to say, some reflections about the day of Tishabov, as to some extent seen through the Torah reading and through the Haftorah. Of course, there's a lot more to think about. Thank you for joining. Uh, if anybody has a comment, I think we have like one minute, maybe. Let me see. Um, it is yeah, now. We have one or two minutes. Go ahead. Anybody have comments or questions? I'll take it. Yes. Um, there's sorry. nothing in the chat, but Suri. Suri, go ahead. 
Now I'll just make a small linguistic point back to the Haftarah that if you're already extending the Mirma idea to the Yaakov and Lavan story, you have the Pasuk that says, and Yaakov says to Lavan, That's a good point. I mean, to Rachel, he says it to his wives about Lavan. That is a very good point. That's an excellent point. Yeah, it's not, look, Yaakov acted in a, in a, in a dishonest way. And then he meets up with the, uh, with the great maestro of, of, uh, of uh, dishonesty. And he himself becomes the victim of, of, of dishonesty. As Kasuto pointed out, the story of Jacob and the house of Lavan is simply a parallel to what Yaakov did to his brother and to his father, taking advantage of a, a blind person. I mean, by the people's vulnerabilities. Uh, and which, what Jacob is able to do though, he's the hero. What Jacob is able to do is to transform himself. If he stays just Jacob, he never, he never is covenantal. He becomes covenantal by transforming. Jacob becomes Israel. Akov becomes Yashar, as the Ramban pointed out. Yeshurun, Yeshurun, Shurun is Israel. The Ramban cites the verse. Ramban cites that verse. So he's able to transform himself. I would say the great Jewish myth, I don't mean it's not true. But the guiding principle of Judaism is the ability of a person to, to, to self-transform. That is at the core of Jewish thinking, the core of the Chumash, Jacob becoming Israel. But he requires transformation. So you do have the, the, the Hatel as well, good point. Avichem Hetobi, excellent point. You have the triple Mirma, and you have the Yaakov Yaakov, and you have the reason for exile. A, a partial justification, sorfam uvechantim, to purify, to cleanse, to learn, to learn from the suffering. Now, the price of the Jewish people has been extraordinarily high. I'm not here to justify. But what the day of Tishabab is about is about understanding what the loss is and at least beginning to think about how to, how to make it better. All right, I'll have to stop you. There's another session coming up. Uh, Dr. Ziegler teaches at 245. Thank you for joining myself and Drish.